Welcome to Mind Love, episode 86. Today's episode is all about the power of self-belief. I went to the tattoo parlor to get the word believe tattooed on my wrist because I said, when I make the Olympic Games, I will put the Olympic rings underneath here. I've just been through the worst nine months of my entire life. And I now saw a strength inside of myself that I didn't know I had. And while yes, like physiologically, I had been making no steps forward in order to like achieve this big goal of making the Olympics, what I was strengthening was a muscle people couldn't see. And that was my self-belief. With that word believe tattooed on my wrist, I said, you know, if anyone can do this, it's me. I started training. I only had six months to get back to who I was and then improve upon that. And six months later, stars aligned, step by step, inch by inch, insert cliche line here. I end up making the Olympic Games and finishing as an Olympic semifinalist and one of the youngest competitors in the field. And I came home and I put the Olympic rings underneath that believe exactly where I said I would. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. First off, I want to give a shout out to my favorite podcast review of the week by Jen Hom 95, calling Mind Love life changing. She said this podcast will truly open your mind and help you find your best self. Everyone could benefit from each and every episode. Thank you so much, Jen. That review lit me up this week. It's funny when you think about it, something that might just take you a couple minutes could totally just make someone's day. And you did that for me. So thank you. Today's episode is going to be so much fun because I'm bringing on a friend of mine. Her name is Sarah Wells, and she's an Olympic hurdler for Canada, the 400 meter hurdles. And actually, she is currently airing on the Amazing Race Canada. So that's exciting. Forewarning, though, she's not allowed to tell us who won, so I didn't ask in this episode. And I know it's really hard. Patience. I'm not good at it. Seriously, I'm the type of girl who will Google the ending of a movie or the winner of The Bachelorette at the very first point of tension. So yes, I already know who's getting that final rose. Back to the topic. But before we get into all the goodness of self-belief, I want to address something that keeps coming up. Actually, a few of you have emailed me about it, and I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day where they were asking how do I, first of all, get the guests for this show? And how do I have so many high profile friends or friends that are doing big things in the world? And this person that I was talking to was saying, well, you live in LA. It's so much easier. But guess what? My friend Sarah Wells does not live in LA. She lives in Toronto. And I did not always have high level friends. And I say high level in every sense of the word, not just people making a lot of money. I mean, people with a mission, people doing something greater than themselves. So my secret to finding people like this is to start doing it yourself. Start leveling yourself up. Start aligning yourself with what's important to you. And suddenly you'll find yourself surrounded by like-minded people. That is how I started connecting with people like this, is when I first started adding value. I met Sarah across the country at a program that we were both doing to level ourselves up. We were both pushing ourselves, which is one of the best ways to bond with another human being is when you're both in the trenches. I'm sharing this because leveling up your social circle is one of the most powerful things you can do. What you believe to be possible and what you believe you are capable of is very much influenced by what you see around you. And the people in your lives play a huge hand in that. So if you are surrounding yourself with people playing small, people who don't believe they can make a real impact on the world, or approach life with fear and skepticism, that's going to rub off on you. If you start reading books by the most successful people, it's interesting because so many of the concepts come down to very simple things that are repeated over and over again in different ways. It's because these are universal truths. I'm sure a lot of you have heard you're the sum of your five or six closest friends or always surround yourself with people who help make you a better version of you or surround yourself with those conducive to you being your highest self. It's said in so many ways. And there's a reason because it's true. 
So what I love about Sarah is that she wasn't born thinking, okay, I am an elite athlete. Like I'm good at this. I'm better than everyone. She struggled. She struggled to find something she was good at at all. And it was by seeing somebody training next to her who had actually made it to the Olympics that changed her mindset on what she thought was possible. So Sarah started to realize that being an Olympic athlete isn't something you're born with. It's something that you work for. And all she had to do was want it bad enough. Well, this episode applies to so much more than making it big in athletics. It applies to really anything that you're striving for. And she has all of the keys, all of those universal truths in her daily practices. And these disciplines have not only enabled her to make the Olympics, but also to start inspiring other people to do the same. Three key things we will learn today are how to get back up when life gets you down, universal principles to becoming the best at anything, and how to expand your self-beliefs to achieve anything you put your mind to. Before we dive in, I want to make sure you know about the Morning Mind Love. It's the easiest way to start each day with a little reminder about how magical you really are. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start the day, or that the message that just came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. You'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided affirmation meditation to align your subconscious with your highest self, and you'll get a really cool booklet of Powerless so you can start getting clear on what you want and what really makes you happy. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Olympic hurdler Sarah Wells to the show. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So I am so excited to have you on today. And I want to just start out. You have so many amazing nuggets of your story that I hope to touch on today. So To start, I want to talk about actually making it to the Olympics. I've always looked at Olympians and assumed that, well, they're just born differently or they had to have known as a three-year-old that they're going to be some elite athlete. (laughs) Did you always feel like you were different in that way? Like you were born to run or was this something that you had to cultivate throughout your life? So I definitely was not the kid who grew up and said, I'm going to be an Olympian. This is my hope and dream. I liked being active and I liked sports, but I didn't really have a thing I was really good at. And so I ended up actually going to high school and originally thought that I was going to dancer because all the cool girls in my high school were dancers. I was actually a harasser and tried out to become a dancer and was terrible. Like clearly wasn't a dancer, didn't get on any other sports team and eventually had a high school teacher see me in gym class and say, you need to do track and field. And I had been cut from so many teams that I was already so discouraged. I almost didn't go out for the team. But then when I did, I found hurdles and I fell in love with the sport and I happened to be pretty good. And so really that high school teacher changed the course of my life and kind of fostered this belief in myself that like, maybe I could become an Olympian and maybe I did have what it took to make this like impossible dream come true. And that was kind of like the budding moments of it. And then became far more of a reality to me when four years before I made my very first Olympics, it was 2008 and a training partner friend of mine he made the Olympics in 2008 in Beijing. And I saw him train like day in, day out. And so he had bad days. He like kind of bonked in workouts sometimes. And, but he was strong and he was persistent and he made the Olympics. And so suddenly when I saw him, I'm like, oh, well, he's a normal human. <laughs> like he has bad days and he can do it. So I think I can too. And so in 2008 was really the first time I probably started saying out loud, like, I'm going to become an Olympian. That's incredible. It really goes to show you how important it is to surround yourself by people that are doing what you might want to achieve, even if it's a small step, because 
without that, it's easy to idolize these people and say, they're just different than me. That like, that's an Olympian. I could never be that. And I ran track. I was not surrounded by Olympians. It didn't even really (laughs) come across my mind that, oh, maybe that'll be something that I try for. I just assumed that I had to give up absolutely everything in my life to become this thing. And I probably wouldn't if it happened. (laughs) So that's so cool that, that, that just that, that influence can change the course of your life. Yeah. I think that having that training partner in my life, it really is finding that person and surrounding yourself with people that inspire you and want to be able to like support you or show you what's possible. And that's really what this training partner was for me is, is he allowed me to see what was possible. Yeah. And also it's not about this thing that you're born with. It's about what you're willing to do to get there. And I hear in business also so many times, because that is more my focus right now about how, well, you've got to become the best in the world at this one thing. And that that can still seem so out of reach to people. But even if it's something as small as, you know, like, I can't even think of a small example right now, (laughs) but like a meditation (laughs) expert or like marketing, or I think of now our mutual friend, Craig, who was like, okay, I'm going to become the best copywriter in the world. So he sat there every single day and just started writing. It can be really daunting to assume that like the only way to success is to find that one thing and be the absolute best at it. But like I said, in high school, like I wasn't good at any other sport. Like I was trying to find something, but like there was many paths that I could have taken to become successful. And it doesn't have to be what your peers do or what you're like, in business, what your competitors are doing, that's not the only way to succeed. And you don't have to be the absolute best in every single area and everything you do in order to have that desired end result. And it's not like Olympic athletes are these like superhuman creatures that are drink lime green beverages that turn us into the incredible Hulk before we get on the starting line. It's that exactly what you said, we're potentially just a group of people that are willing to choose to get back up and be persistent and remain positive with like a strong sense of self-belief that regardless of the obstacles we're facing or the circumstances that may be present, that we're willing to kind of push past that and see those challenges as hurdles instead of walls. And I think that's in everyone's capability. And sometimes it just takes someone to believe in you first. And I know for me, that came from that high school teacher for me. And yeah, I think trying to debunk the idea that you have to be perfect and that there's only one path to success. That's how someone's going to be able to take that small step and be able to begin the path to whatever their definition of success is. Cause you don't enter in with all that pressure and stress that like you must be everything. Ooh, seeing the challenges as hurdles is a very Olympic hurdler thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website.
let's talk about your tattoo because you have a tattoo on your wrist that says believe. And I want to know the origins of that. Yes. So the power of self-belief is so important to me that I had it tattooed on the inside of my wrist. And that came about because the year before my first Olympics, I had been training. Like I said, I was inspired by my training partner back in 2008 to say out loud, I'm going to go to the Olympics. This is what I'm going to do. This is my big dream and I'm going to make it happen. And now just the year before in 2011, I had been in the best shape I had ever been in, but I had actually never touched Olympic standard before. So I needed every day, every week, every month in order to make this dream come true. I had only ever run 56 seconds for the 400 meter hurdles, and I needed to run 55 seconds in order to qualify. And so at this particular training camp a year before the Olympics, I work out and the next day I wake up and when I step down out of bed, I get this like searing pain at my leg. And I was like, well, I don't remember doing anything the day before. So what could this injury be? Hopefully it's something small, but it ends up not being something small. It ends up being massive. Actually, I had developed a stress fracture in my femur and a stress fracture is a deterioration of your bone from the inside out that eventually leads to a crack. And your femur is your massive thigh bone, the biggest bone in your body. And when I hear this from the doctor, I'm absolutely heartbroken because I've now been telling people I'm going to make the Olympics and I'm so determined and I have a lot of work to do to be able to qualify. And now in the final moments, I'm told I have this injury and I feel like I'm watching this dream slip away. And so I asked the doctor, you know, how long is this going to take? And he said, I think you have to sit out for about three months. And this wasn't just like sitting out maybe doing like light exercise or whatever it may be. This was no weight bearing, no walking, no jogging, definitely no hurdling. And it left me with so much time to think, unfortunately, (laughs) too much time to think because I couldn't even like walk down the street to go to the grocery store and like get my dinner foods because I wasn't allowed to do any weight bearing. And so this just left me with so much time to question my self-worth and think about who am I without this goal? What if I don't make it? Are my friends still going to like me? Are people going to listen to what I have to say? And that made me want to give up and quit because every day that passed, every week that passed, I felt like I was only getting further and further away from that goal. And after I made it through those three months, I went back to see the doctor and I was so excited. And I thought, okay, can I go? Can I train? Is it healed? And he ends up sitting down looking at the brand new scan he had done on my leg. And he's like, I'm so sorry, Sarah, the bone's actually still not healed. And I was devastated because I had just made it through what I thought was like the worst three months of my entire life. And now he tells me I have to sit out another month. And that other month turned into another month and another month and another month. And eventually, by the time I was cleared to run, I had to sit out for nine months. Oh my God. And this is nine months, year before the Olympic Games. And so everyone around me reminds me to remain realistic that this is already a pretty impossible goal and that I've now made it a bit more challenging on myself by sitting around the last nine months. <laughs> and I remember when I was cleared to run, it was October 4th, and Olympic trials were July 1st. And so this left me with about eight months to get back to who I was and then improve that entire second. And you were in track, so you understand, like, obviously, like milliseconds can be the difference between winning and losing. And so to improve an entire second is like an eternity. And so on that first day back to training with eight months to go to get back to who I was and then improve by an entire second, everyone told me how hard this was going to be. But I finished that first workout on October 4th and I left the track and I went immediately to the tattoo parlor (laughs) and I went to the tattoo parlor to get the word believe tattooed on my wrist. Because I said, when I make the Olympic Games, I will put the Olympic rings underneath here. I've just been through the worst nine months of my entire life. And I now saw a strength inside of myself that I didn't know I had. And while yes, like physiologically, I had been making no steps forward in order to like achieve this big goal of making the Olympics. What I was strengthening was a muscle people couldn't see. And that was my self-belief. And so with that word believe tattooed on my wrist, I said, you know, if anyone can do this, it's me. I started training and three weeks into being back, I actually ended up, of course, obstacle after obstacle. I ended up tearing a hernia in my inguinal ligament and having to go in for surgery. And so by the time I got back from that, I only had six months to get back to who I was and then improve upon that. And six months later, stars aligned, step by step, inch by inch, insert cliche line here. I end up 
making the Olympic Games and finishing as an Olympic semifinalist and one of the youngest competitors in the field. And I came home and I put the Olympic rings underneath that belief exactly where I said I would. And it was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That is crazy. I want to know during those nine months when you couldn't take action, you were strengthening that muscle that people can't see of self-belief. What was part of your process? Because I know when we are stuck in overthinking, that's one of the things I always say, try not to do. Take action instead, because the action is going to be the evidence to help you believe in yourself. So what was the evidence for you during that time that you couldn't actually act? I love that you say take action instead of overthink because I feel very strongly about that as well. Like it's the only way to kind of provide yourself an opportunity to show yourself like that strength or that you can move forward. And when I couldn't physically take action, there was ways that I took action that were within my capabilities. And so one of those things was journaling and logging everything. I would go to my physiotherapist appointment and I would maybe log with the resistance bands today. Like I did this many different things of like with my arms and with this. And so I am realigning my hips or I'm strengthening my spine structure to be able to hold a stronger core. And that will help me once I am able to run and finding all of those small things and writing them down. So that way I don't discredit them because it's easy in your head to be like, Oh, I've barely done anything this week. And it's like, Oh, if we actually wrote down everything we all did in a week, we would recognize like how full our lives are and how much we maybe actually accomplished. And we'd maybe be a lot more compassionate with ourselves. And so for me, that came from logging in this journal, everything I had done and the small steps I was taking forward or things that I could use when I would be back in physical action. And some of those things would literally be like, you know, I thought about quitting today, but I showed up at physio and I did it anyways. And it's like, Knowing that, it's like I've strengthened that muscle and I'm going to be able to use it when I get back. And having it all logged allowed me to not discredit all of those small things I had been doing during the time where I couldn't do much. (laughs) I love this point that Sarah makes because, first of all, what you measure improves. That's something that I've learned a lot in the business world, but it's also true in our life. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to track your wins on a daily basis. Our brain has this negativity bias that we talk about all the time. So if we don't track the things that we're proud of, our small improvements on a daily basis, the things going right in our lives, if we don't seek out, consciously seek out what we're grateful for, all of the amazing, beautiful, wonderful things in our daily lives, our brain will naturally start focusing on all the things that are going wrong, on all the ways that we aren't enough. And then when we look at an overview of our lives, it'll be really easy to feel like we haven't accomplished anything or there's been more failure than there has been successes. But when you consciously track your progress, the things that light you up, the things that are going well for you, you'll have a record to look back and say, wow, I have come a long way from last year. And you want to know what else I notice? Most of the time, I don't even need to go look back over that record. I don't really need to scan through my gratitude journal and see all the things I accomplished. Just the act of making those moments a little bit more front of mind, a little bit more in my conscious awareness, those become the things that come to my mind when I'm thinking about the past month or year. So it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be this thing that you're constantly reminding yourself about. You build a habit around the positive and the progress. And most of all, it's fun. I would say this habit of tracking wins and noting my progress is probably one of the biggest things that moves me forward. When I fall off that bandwagon, when I let my structure slip a little bit, I feel it. And in more areas of my life than just business, it starts to feel more like I'm swimming upstream or in some cases drowning rather than just riding this big, beautiful wave of the opportunities presented to me. And that wave, my friend, is called alignment. The second thing that I was always doing was a lot of visualization. And there's a ton of scientific research around the fact that visualization can rewire and strengthen our brains as if we are taking the physical action. And so while I couldn't train or race or go over any hurdles physically, 
I could sit there and imagine a workout, go through the way I would feel, the things I would think at certain checkpoints. And I do this a lot on race day when I'm like able to actually run. And so I had had a ton of practice of doing this. And so I was able to transfer that in the time that I was injured and sit there and go through a race and start my watch when I would imagine myself coming out of the starting blocks. And I would go through every single hurdle and there's 10 hurdles in a race. And I would feel what it would feel like. Like at hurdle one, all I'm thinking about is this cue. At hurdle three, I'm thinking run off the hurdle. At hurdle four, I'm imagining the wind at my back. At hurdle five, I'm starting to feel my breath start to get out of control. Then I'm starting to feel tired. I can come around the corner. I start feeling the pressure. My legs are getting heavy. Hurdle seven, I'm going to think attack. At hurdle eight, I'm going to use my arms. At hurdle nine, I'm going to make sure I stay tall. At hurdle 10, I'm giving it everything I have. I get to the finish line. I lean and I stop my watch. And I would get within one to two seconds of what I was actually capable of running. And that helped me feel like I hadn't lost touch with the sport. I hadn't lost touch with my capabilities because my brain was so highly wired into being being able to execute that plan that I knew the more times I did that, the more I would strengthen that connection between my mind and my body. And I would be ready to get on the track and do exactly that as soon as I was physically able. So really those two things allowed me to take action, writing it down, logging it, journaling it, and then the visualization piece. Wow. There was something so powerful about that little routine. I have like full body chills. I like felt myself <laughs> sprinting across the finish line. <laughs> so once you accomplished that big goal, it's like you've been working so hard to make the Olympics. After you made it. I'm sure there was so much joy and pride and all of that. But then what? What was your next step once you became the thing that you were working towards? How do you then move beyond that goal to something greater? Yeah, that's a great question because it's funny because I, I think very few of us plan for what that is. Like we have our sights set on what is the top of our imaginary staircase. And we don't even look at if the stairs keep going beyond there. And for me, it really was like, all I saw was make the Olympics, make the Olympics. I need to make the Olympics. I have to make the Olympics. Everything I want is make the Olympics. And then I do. And now what? Because it was, like you said, exhilarating. And the time at the Olympics was incredible. And that my whole family was able to fly out and my coach and my partner at the time. And it was just like, so amazing. The whole experience just like felt so surreal. And then I went home. And it was like after being on TV, having millions of people watching me at home, having this like glamorous experience in the Olympic Village where everything is taken care of. I come home and it's like, oh, I have to take out my own garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I have to feed myself like people aren't just going to cook for me. Oh, and I still have the same shitty car I've always had. (laughs) Yeah, it was just like a really weird thing. You think your whole life is about to transform. And, And in a way, I got to carry on the title Olympian and that was incredible. And that did change my life in many ways. But was still very much the same me. But I think I had idolized the Olympics and I had idolized the people that had made it that I thought I was going to come out a different person on the other side. And I'm still very much the same person. And I think we also, when we're seeking a big goal, we might be willing to put in all the work up to a certain point to achieve that goal. But once we do get it, there's like a sense of entitlement. And I think I had that. I think I had kind of like, okay, the sponsors will come to me now. Like now that I've made the Olympics, I deserve to have the sponsors and I should be getting these and has to work out this way. And really, (laughs) I am not entitled to anything. Like if I'm not working for it, if I'm not providing value in return to the world or to whoever I'm working with, then that doesn't entitle you to anything just because of what I've done in the past. And so coming back from the 2012 Olympics in London, was a real awakener for me to be like, wow, nothing really changed. (laughs) And in 2013, something that I honestly rarely talk about or bring up and is maybe something I should lean more heavily into to hopefully, I don't know, inspire others to think differently about this. But I came home in 2013 and... This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. 
then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I came home in 2013 and I basically had put myself so far in debt to try to make the Olympics and have my sole focus on that and have almost no sponsors that when sponsor didn't come running at my door to now sponsor me once I had made the Olympics, I was in massive debt and I ended up becoming basically homeless for 2013 and I had to move out of my apartment. I had to live on my sister's couch. I didn't know if I was going to be able to continue sport because how could I keep going if I'm only getting further and further in debt? And it was scary because of this idea that we have that once you achieve a certain level of success, everything will work out. Like you've reached the top of the staircase. So everything will be great now. <laughs> and I think we should absolutely be believing that because everything will work out if we put the intention. And I very much believe that. But it's like we have to come from a place of like gratitude, not entitlement. And I think that's what I had to change about the way I was looking at it because I was homeless and I didn't know what to do. And I felt like I didn't want to quit sport. And so I had to find a different way. And so instead I was like with incredible gratitude, grateful for the experience of the injury and having to sit out for the nine months and coming back from that. And I started to share that story from a place of gratitude of like, I'm so happy this went hap this went on because I think I can now use this to inspire others. And that sense and positioning I came from provided me opportunities to speak about my story and start to make money as a speaker, which then paid for my training. And so I think when we achieve a goal and there's something that we have in mind, know that the staircase keeps going and that you have to come from a place of gratitude and not a place of entitlement. And to stay inspired, highly driven people might get bored easily. Like I won't say everyone, but once you're ambitious enough to have this crazy wild dream, you're probably ambitious enough to have another. And so <laughs> you find a way to continue to light that fire. And for me, it was like the Olympics was the first fire. And now the second fire was finding a way to grow my speaking business and use everything I have done as an athlete and find a way to help others with that. Yeah, it's so interesting. So many of our goals are about self-fulfillment, which I think is the where we should all start. It's like that initial fire that maybe this is a sign that this is how I'm supposed to give value. But I have noticed in my own life that often the universe will provide its own limitations. And I remember when I was actually designing apps for a living, I wanted to be creative with this app design and my CEO did not at all share my vision. And I thought he had really bad taste in what looks visually appealing, by the way. So I, I was like, well, how am I going to design this? And I remember I had a kind of creative mentor who had used to work with Disney and a lot of other high profile jobs. And so I was venting to him and I was just like, Alistair, he doesn't understand like this is what he wants us to create. And he shared this video by John Cleese that was all about creativity, but how being a professional creative is working within the limitations of whatever your requirements are. And it just reminds me of so many different areas of my life where I'm like, wow, the universe just put a stop to where I thought I wanted to go, whether it was money, whether it was a record or <laughs> like yeah. whatever happened to come up. And suddenly I had to work within those boundaries. And what it did though, was it funneled me exactly where I needed to be. And for you, it went from just being an Olympian to being an Olympian that also is able to really work on or define the gifts and how you did certain things and the way you're even able to talk about 
what happened at different points of your journey shows that you have spent time really reflecting on that so that you could productize it and share it with other people and they could adopt it. So that's really, really inspiring. <laughs> you're so sweet. Thank you. No, everything you're saying very much, it resonates with me. And I think yeah, it can be hard in those moments when we feel like the universe closes that door and we're like, wait, no, what? I wasn't done with that. <laughs> but it's like, there's another plan. And I think everything happens for a reason and we're all in the place exactly where we should be. And so it's a matter of accepting that and knowing, okay, I might be on the cusp of something incredible. I don't know what the heck that is yet, but hopefully it's on its way. So speaking of change of plans or things not going as you expected them to, let's talk <laughs> about the 2016 Olympics. What happened there? Yeah. So as I mentioned, so 2012, I'm making the Olympics, 2013, I'm homeless. I repurpose my shift and I start speaking and that's great, but I'm still continuing as an athlete and getting better and getting stronger and getting faster and continuing to build that story. And in 2015 at the Pan Am Games, which is a major game, it's like half the world participates. And I won a silver medal for Canada because I'm Canadian. And <laughs> I won a silver medal at the Pan Am Games. And I only lost to the number one ranked girl in the world that year. And so that was so exciting because I had just run the fastest I had ever gone. I won a medal on the international stage. And I thought, okay, in 2016, I'm going to win a medal. Like, I'm in the best shape of my life. I have seen and now done something incredible and like saw what it's like to win a medal on the international stage. And so I'm going to do that at the Rio Olympics in 2016. And I'm in great shape in 2016. I am feeling confident, but I also am feeling this immense amount of pressure that everyone around me is saying, well, you were at the last Olympics, right? So you'll be at this Olympics. See you there. <laughs> like, You want a medal at Pan Am Games. So you're going to win a medal for us at the Olympics, right? Like, don't let us down. Ha ha. And like that joke <laughs> is like stinging my heart. I'm like, oh my God, don't let them down. But <laughs> two months before the 2016 Olympic trials, I had a workout on a Tuesday and I ran so fast. And my coach and I were like, wow, we are on the cusp of something great here this year. And so I'm excited, but I'm also, again, managing these emotions of like, okay, I need to be Sarah Wells, the Olympian, and I want to be influential and I want to make sure I'm inspiring. And so I can't be anything but Sarah Wells, the Olympian. But that word Olympian comes with a costume and an armor and assumptions. And you feel like you need to be this like perfect Greek statue, which makes it absolutely impossible to move because you're not fluid. You're not being yourself. You're not allowing flexibility for days where you might feel depleted or defeated in some way. And so after that major workout on the Tuesday, when I ran so fast, the next morning I woke up on the Wednesday and my hamstrings were incredibly tight, which makes perfect sense because I had just gone the fastest I had ever gone the day before. But I had another really big workout planned on the Wednesday. And I thought to myself, okay, well, I don't know if I should work out today. I'm feeling pretty tight, but like, what if I don't work out? If I don't work out, then I won't be doing everything I can. If I don't do everything I can, then I might not make the Olympics. If I don't make the Olympics, then I won't be influential. And I thought by showing that I might doubt myself, that I might have weak moments, I wouldn't be inspiring then, would I? If I missed a workout, like I wouldn't be influential then, would I? And so I decided to work out anyways. And at that workout, I ended up tearing my hamstring. And I ripped an inch tear in my hamstring. And four years after I thought I had already overcome the biggest obstacle in my career, I learned another hard lesson. Because the reason I chose to work out that day was because I wanted to live up to this expectation of Sarah Wells, the Olympian. I wanted to be influential. And what's funny is that if we expose our imperfections, if we expose our insecurities and our doubts, then that makes us human. And our humanity is what makes us influential. And so I needed to recognize that that day. And so after sitting there that night and reflecting on that piece and understanding, showing up and being the Olympian wasn't the only way to be inspiring, wasn't the only way to be influential. And instead, by me actually being brave enough to admit those doubts, being brave enough to lean on someone else, that is a way to be influential and be a true leader and show what it takes to be vulnerable. And so 
I started back training and I tried to do everything I could with only two months to strengthen that hamstring and get back to try to make the 2016 Rio Olympics. And at Olympic trials, I knew I needed to get top three. And I had been a four-time national champion. I had always won the race when I was in it. And so I thought, okay, top three, I can do that. But my hamstring was unfortunately only able to recover to about 90%. But again, looking down at that believe tattoo, I kind of just said to myself, if anyone can do this, it's me. I believe in me. And so I start the race and I'm giving it everything I have, every ounce of courage and grit and strength. And I'm charging down the finish line and every ounce of my body is flooded with lactic acid, but I am fighting through it with everything I have. And I get to the finish line and I lean. And I get fourth. And I was devastated because I needed to get top three and I got fourth. And for four years, I had been known as Sarah Wells, the Olympian. And now Sarah Wells, the Olympian, doesn't make the Olympics. And I felt like such a fool and I felt like such a failure. And I thought my friends weren't going to like me anymore. And people weren't going to listen to what I have to say. And I thought the whole world was about to be flipped upside down. But fortunately, (laughs) time heals a lot of things. And I now realize that as much as in that moment, when I didn't make the Olympics, it all felt like such a waste. I now know it was never a waste. It was never a waste for two reasons. Because one, I love the sport of track and field. It has led me to places and allowed me to meet people that I might not have otherwise without my sport. And for that, I am forever grateful. And I would never, never trade any of that, regardless of the outcome that I'd be chasing after that, that journey throughout the way was like just so, so fulfilling. And then the second reason why it was never a waste is that knowing what that second passion is, if, if it's not sport, if, if my second passion is speaking, then I can now relate to every single person in the room of the audiences I speak to because I've been resilient. I've chosen to get back up. I've believed in myself so strongly and I've had the triumphant finish and I make it to the Olympic Games and it's awesome. But then I've been resilient and I've chose to get back up and I've believed in myself so strongly. And then it just didn't work out in 2016. And I've been so lucky to continue to share my story and far more people come up to me after the fact when I give my speeches and they tell me they're more inspired by the time where I didn't make the Olympics over the time where I did. And I think that's because we can all remember a moment where we felt like a failure, where we felt like we didn't live up to our title or to the expectations that we had on ourselves or that others had on us. And I think that can be devastating. But in those moments, we have to understand that exactly like what I said, If your purpose is to inspire others or be influential in some way or change the world with your art or your passion, then you're going to be able to have that influence if you're brave enough to show those imperfections and show your doubt and believe in yourself strongly enough to know that it's okay just to show those. I don't want to call them weaknesses because they're not like they're almost like additional strengths because by allowing someone else to see themselves in you, you're going to be able to be more influential and have that desired outcome rather than just like whatever that destination goal was. Like there's just so much more to it. I, as an athlete, it's ingrained in me. You must win. (laughs) Winning is everything. I really did believe that. And I still put a lot of value in that. And I think everyone does because that's what ambitious people do. (laughs) But I also think that we recognize that I now realize that like moments like this, I get to have this conversation with you. I get to share my story with audiences. And now I understand that that's the way to win. Because when you share in moments like this, I recognize the fact that this might inspire someone else to believe in themselves or to go after their big dream. And I know the power of self-belief and I know what it can do in this world. And so that's what I recognize from all of this. And while, yes, I did not make the Olympics again, and, and I did feel defeated and deflated, I now have a story that will hopefully connect me with every single person I'm able to speak to. And that means so much more. Wow. It reminds me of when my husband applied for American Ninja Warrior. And this was the year we were getting married. So he applied in March. And 
made it and he knew he was going to be on American Ninja Warrior. So he built a training facility at our house. Like we had, no. a rope, we had a rope coming from the ceiling of our attic down so that he could like swing on the rope. And he bought one of those giant cement balls that they use in the American Ninja Warrior games that oh like hangs gosh. that you have to just, so he would leap from the rope and grab the cement ball. Which, by the way, one time we were leaving snowboarding and I forgot the cement ball was hanging and I forgot something and I just whip around the corner and smash my head into the cement ball. (laughs) That's neither here nor there. Well, anyways, so he makes American Ninja Warrior and he is so strong with his upper body. Like he can do things I've never seen people do before. He can do the flagpole for like minutes. Insane. Wow. And then when he's going onto the the track or going through the course, there's two different nights. And so the first night's trials and he finishes top in the trials. And then the second night we actually go and he doesn't go until four or five in the morning. So he's exhausted. He's been up all day. I He's been pushing through his sleep, like has barely slept, not listening to his body, by the way. And yeah. he goes and he gets to this one part and he has to jump from one rope and grab another and he doesn't fall, but his toe touches the water. And since it's a reality show, they don't have really defined rules and they just decide to disqualify him. So not only does he not actually fall or make a huge mistake, his toe just touched the water. So anyways, after that moment, he feels so defeated. His mom had flown out from Michigan. He feels like he lost his identity. He would spend hours just thinking about this one piece of failure. And it goes to show the difference between like taking this moment of defeat and choosing to, and I'm sure it wasn't as easy as just being like, okay, well, this is happening for a reason, but choosing to sit there and replay the failure over and over again versus asking, well, what's in this for me? And I will say that if he would have made it, he would have been going on to Las Vegas and like the next round and probably doing like commercials and stuff like that. During the time we were supposed to be getting married, (laughs) we probably would have broken up, to be honest with you. And I'm like, don't you realize this? It was basically me or a reality show championship. (laughs) Like, aren't you glad? Like, really hoping he's going to say like, yes. But it's just two different ways to look at the same thing. And it's all how you choose to look at it. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. Like I lived in that world of replaying the moment and crying myself to sleep. And I did not snap out of it quick. And I don't think anyone could expect that of themselves. And we all have to go through like a period of mourning this goal that we might've been chasing for so long. And yeah, like, I think it's like, take the time, try to mourn the loss, try to, like you said, find a way to take action of repurposing that or thinking about it in a different way. And Fortunately for me, I had that action vessel of speaking that allowed me to slowly, I'll say very slowly, pull myself out of that dark hole and recognize the power and the inspiration that could come out of what in the moment felt like such defeat. And it sounds like Shane experienced uh, a similar thing. He got you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I better be a better prize. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say. Well, (laughs) when you had that moment, though, where you mentioned Sarah Wells, the Olympian. How has your sense of identity changed from those moments to where you are now? I think my identity, like anything in life, like if you define yourself by only one thing, then the second that's taken away from you, like you're trying to run on a treadmill with no traction, like you've just got nothing there and you're just going to get like whipped out the back. And so I think what I've really recognized is kind of diversifying my identity. And that's really hard to do, especially because when you do have a really big goal and let's say someone who's starting a business, like that's very much like all consuming. And that's all you think about. And that's when you wake up in the morning, it's the first thing you think about. And when you go to sleep at night, it's the last thing you think about. So I recognize it can be really hard to diversify your identity when such a big goal requires basically like all of you. But I think it's important to actively be pursuing different passions or making time for one day a week to explore something new about yourself, whether that's like, and that doesn't have to be anything big. That's like, go outside, go to a market, hang out with friends, define yourself with like the people you hang out with. You know what? I have really good friends. I'm a person who's constantly surrounded by lovely people or like, you know, I'm a person who is like constantly exploring. Like I'm, I'm always going to new festivals or I'm exploring different parts of the world. 
can be as simple as finding something one day a week that's different than the goal you're pursuing. And that will help you recognize the very diverse things about yourself. And so for me, I have found that through speaking, I've met a ton of people and I've gotten to know different like hobbies that people have and different interests that they have. And that might expose me to different hobbies, interests and like, Oh, would I like that? Like, maybe I should try those things. And so I think my active pursuit of diversifying my interest portfolio has come from meeting people. And not everyone's like an extrovert like I am and might not like getting out there and meeting people. But like I said, it can come from just exploring nature on your own or doing some more writing or reflecting and finding those alternative things. And so for me, I now recognize that I am a person who can read people well and recognize good people. And then I feel very fortunate to be surrounded by those people because they inspire me to be better and be more and think differently. And so I have that. And then I have sport. And then I have speaking. And then I started an organization called the Believe Initiative. And we have students pick a passion they have, a problem they want to solve, and they use that passion to solve that problem. And they build self-belief through action. And that keeps me very busy. And so it's like, there's all these different things that I've been so fortunate to be exposed to that have allowed me to feel like more than just an athlete. Yeah, it's so true people, other people, and just experiences, really just this existence is Mm -hmm. a reflection of yourself back at you. It's a way that we seek expression. And so if you're staying in one hole or in just one area of your life the entire time, it's going to be really easy to believe that that is all you are. And all it takes is just getting outside your comfort zone or even staying in your comfort zone somewhere else (laughs) to have other, like it's a prism, other parts of you reflected back. That was one thing I loved about the speaking training that we did together is that I was out there all on my own and I'm meeting new people and I discovered little bits of myself, little parts of my personality, even that come out there that might not come out just at home with my husband. And it was such a liberating thing to just sink into. And instead of saying like, well, who am I? Or I need to find myself. It shifts it to who can I be? What other parts of myself can I discover? And suddenly it's the opportunities are endless. Yeah. I love that. Who can I be? That's so powerful because you don't have to put yourself in any type of box. There's so many possibilities, especially in this world of disruption and these new jobs. Like these things that exist right now are things no one could ever dream about 50 years ago. And so it's like, whatever is your passion, whatever is what you feel your purpose is, whoever you think you can be, there's a place for you. There's something you can create. There's something you can make. There's a place for you. Your people are here. <laughs> the last thing I want to touch on with you, because it's something that inspires me so much, is your ability to say no to things that aren't serving your goal. I have a difficult time with that. If I see fun, I want to run towards it. (laughs) And there's so many times where everyone's like, okay, yeah, we're going out to do karaoke. And you're like, I have to do my run. What keeps you so focused? And where's your motivation come from? At the times that you actually want to say yes, but you know you should say no, what do you tap into within yourself to keep you on your path? It's so funny that you say that because I wouldn't have said that about myself, that I'm like so good at saying no. Like, and I <laughs> I feel like I can be a people pleaser at times, but I get what you're saying. That like, there's an element of through sport. And I appreciate you saying that. It's making me feel very nice like, <laughs> as if I'm actually doing this. But yeah, through sport, of course, there's things I have to miss out on, especially growing up through university or things like that, where it's like, no, okay, I have this other goal. Like, so I can't come to that party. Or I can't go to that cottage weekend. I can't necessarily eat that thing. And I mean, I definitely recognize in myself that it's easier to do the closer the goal feels. And so my training cycles kind of work like we start training in the fall and then my major competitions don't happen until late spring and through the summer. And so in the fall, it's really easy for me to be deterred from the path I know is best. And so someone might say, oh, I'm having this thing. You should come out. And it's like, oh, that's definitely a little bit late. And I have training the next morning. Like, should I go? Should I not? And I might be more inclined to say yes, because my goal isn't until summer. And so I like might be more lenient in my flexibility of kind of deterring from that path. And so I think if there's ways that we can take a goal that might seem really far away and provide milestones or things that are closer, that feel closer to us, then we'll be more likely to commit to that goal or say no to the things that 
aren't serving us. And so in that case, something my coach and I work on together, because this can be hard to do on your own. If someone's feeling at this moment, like while they're listening to this, like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what that would look like. How do you set out a plan like that? Like, that's overwhelming for sure. So talk it out with someone. And for me, we talk it out with my coach and we, we put in little milestones of like, okay, when do you want to have a first check-in point? And there might be like a time trial I do in training, which means nothing to the outside world. It doesn't matter if I run fast or slow because it's not a major championships, but it's a milestone that is showing me that I am on the right track for this big goal. And if it means enough to me, then I'm going to probably make the choices necessary to perform well at that time trial. So then that way I can seek the assurance in the fitness level I want or in the right mindset. And so I think if you can take something that's a really big dream, a really big goal and find small things that make the goal feel closer, then you're going to be more likely to say no, because knowing that time trial is coming up, I might weeks before make sure I'm limiting my sugar intake and I'm making sure I'm getting all the rest I need, even though my major championships might be six months away. And so the choices I'm making on that given day might not feel as important for that end goal, but they'll mean a lot to the goal that's closer, which is that time trial. Yeah, Melissa, let's, what would be like a big goal of yours? Like, let's perform this exercise like this. Well, one of my main goals has always been public speaking. I want to start getting on stages. So I have been working on it, as you know. But by this time next year, I want to have two to six speaking gigs per month, maybe even more. I'm open. Yeah. Okay. So that's the big goal. And that might feel daunting or scary because at this point in the early stages, your calendar is not flooded with speeches. So it can be hard to like actively seek out opportunities or maybe it can feel like you don't need to have all the resources in place, like getting one pager together or all those things. Like it might feel like it's so far away. Could you go and offer up, or it might even like be that you're not practicing your speech as much as you'd like to be because you don't have that gig on the calendar yet. And so what if you forced yourself (laughs) into a closer goal by going to volunteer somewhere to give your speech, which would then encourage you to make the choices over the next few weeks to do everything necessary to prepare for something that will be that big goal of performing on a big stage and fill your calendar with those things. And by you providing a goal, like say by in the next three weeks, you're going to have a speech and you pick that date today, (laughs) then you're probably going to be able to say no to more things or in an hour where you have some free time where you're like, I could work on my speech, but I'd rather not knowing that you have that event in three weeks, you're probably going to choose to work on that speech. And then that way, as you're bringing that goal closer to you, you're staying on that course. You're right. I've been doing a lot of behind the scenes work, such as preparing this keynote, really getting my message in alignment, piling all the things that I've learned from this podcast. So my next step really is making the declaration. I know in myself that when I announce something to the world or when I put something out there and say, I'm going to do this, other people know about it instead of just me. It's definitely a point of accountability that helps me further my mission. Yeah, I think that's actually an additional layer involving someone else so that you are held accountable. I'm realizing that so much of what we talked about today comes back to our self-image, creating our own self-images, and also finding ways to expand beyond the way you see yourself right now. Most of our limitations, if not all, are self-imposed. That's why we have so many tools to transform our mindsets because they really are just tools. You find out that you train with somebody you've never trained before and suddenly your idea of what's possible expands. Suddenly you hear something about yourself from somebody else and suddenly you see yourself in a new light. So thank you so much for allowing us into the mind of an Olympian and show us that you're a real person too. So for listeners who want to follow along and see what you're up to next, where's the best place for them to connect with you online? Certainly social media. My handle is Sarah Wells 400 MH, which is like 400 meter hurdles. Um, It's Sarah with an H Wells, W-E-L-L-S 400 MH on Instagram and Twitter. And then my organization, our website, believeinitiative.com. And they can find me there as well. I got so much out of this episode, and I'm hoping you did too. There was something funny that happened in the interview. I told Sarah how I saw her as this self-disciplined person who's so good at saying no to things. And she shared that that was a surprise to her because that's not how she sees herself. And that same thing happens to me all the time. 
I live with myself. I know what goes on, on in my brain. I know how often I'm distracted and how often I feel like I'm going down the rabbit hole doing the wrong thing. And then a friend will tell me, well, you're so driven and motivated and you're so good at getting things done. And I'm like, oh, I must be putting on a really good show for you guys then. But that's the thing, is we expect that in order to be something, that we have to be perfect at it. But we don't. We only need to be that sometimes. We put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect that we don't see these little fragments of the people that we could be or the people that we really are. In my 30-day mindset course, we have an exercise in there, and it's something that did change my life. I've mentioned this before, but at one point, I wrote a letter to 11 different people I knew, and I asked what they saw in me. And the responses I got changed the way I viewed myself, and it was one of the catalysts to me creating this life that I love. So I challenge you to do that. Ask somebody close to you what they see in you, what they see as one of your superpowers or your strong suits. And I know it can be pretty intimidating to reach out to people and ask for this. I had heard about this exercise years before I actually did it, and I wasn't ready. Although I should have been. I should have just gone for it. I mean, there's really no downside, and people like helping you. So head to the show notes, actually, and I'm going to give you the template of the email that I actually used when I reached out to friends word for word so you can just copy and paste it or tweak it to make it sound like yours but it can be really helpful to have a starting point and the responses are so worth it every time we do this in the course people come back almost in tears saying they didn't know that that's what their friends or family saw in them so that's all for today. As always, make sure to subscribe and share the episode. Take a screenshot or tell a friend, tag Mind Love Melissa or Mind Love Podcast on social media and connect with me there. I love hearing from you guys. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.